Good morning, everyone. As Carrie said, I'll be reading from Acts 3. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power, our godliness, we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is, it is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, the times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who's been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be, brought, will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, High Point Church. Can you hear me well? Good, good. Um, these next two weeks, you're going to be hearing from me. I hear, oh yeah. For some of you, that's good news. Um, for those of you who are, who are new, I'm the senior associate pastor here at High Point. Um, these next two weeks, Pastor Nick is going to be on vacation. He's, he's headed to Florida to enjoy some sun. 
I only wish I could be with him, but I'm sure I would spoil the time with him and his family. Uh, so just pray for them as they are away for these upcoming two weeks. If you'll remember um, last week and last and even the week prior, he talked a little bit about uh, small groups, the fact that we are looking for small group leaders. One of the responsibilities I have is to oversee the small group ministry starting on April the 13th. Any of you brave souls out there who want to venture out into the land of being a small group leader, I'm going to be doing some training for 10 straight weeks. Um, so what I'd like you to do, if you are at all remotely interested, take a connection card in your pew, mark on it, you know, I'd be interested in joining Lloyd's group and drop it off at the welcome station. Uh, again, we'll start on April 13th and, and uh, I'm excited to be doing that, that new training. Um, last week, we had the pancake breakfast. We broke a record. We had 450 of you. Give yourselves a round of applause. Uh, 450 of you came. That was over 100 from the previous year. Uh, in addition to raising money for our missionaries who are going to be going to the Dominican Republic, uh, we also had opportunity to do some child sponsorships. And seven of you signed up to sponsor children. After the service uh, this morning, as well as the, the one at 1045, if you were at all interested in signing up to sponsor a child in the DR to help with education and medical care and things of that nature, you'll have the opportunity to do that in the lobby. All right? Very good. We're, con we're continuing in our series in Acts 3, uh, the new normal. This morning, I want to talk about the subject of contextualization. I want to talk about how uh, we see in the book of Acts, God working through his apostles to make the message relevant to the specific audience that he's seeking to reach. So we're going to focus on contextualization this morning. Um, in Acts chapter 17, um, there's a story that records the Apostle Paul who is traveling throughout Greece, uh, what is now Turkey, and then he moves into modern-day Greece to the city of uh, Athens. When he gets to the city of Athens, he sees um, a bunch of statues and temples and altars for worshiping foreign gods. And he's a little disrupted by this. It kind of takes him aback. Uh, as was his pattern, he would start preaching in the synagogue. He would, uh, a few, at least a few people would come to faith from in the synagogue. Some Jews and some God-fearers would, would come to faith. And then he would go into the marketplace and begin preaching to the Gentiles in the area. So he goes into the Gentiles area in the marketplace and he runs into some Greek philosophers. Now when he preaches to these Greek philosophers in, in chapter 17, he does not refer to Jewish history or Jewish literature. He doesn't use the Hebrew scriptures as he tries to reach them and convince them about Christ. What he, what he does is he talks to them about classic Greek literature. That's where he starts. Acts 17 and 28, he says, he quotes two Greek poets. One, Epimenides, his name was a bundle to pronounce, Epimenides, and the other, Erastus. Epimenides is the first quote. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. So Paul was not only a, a scholar 
in, in Hebrew literature. He was not only a doctor, as it were, in, in the language and literature and, and theology of his people, he was also knowledgeable in Greek history, right? And secondly, he says, as your own poets have said, second quote, we are his own offspring. So what is he doing here? He is trying to establish common ground with the Greeks. And so he finds some literature that points out some of the outstanding attributes of our God. He finds some common ground and begins to, to preach from there to what they don't know, to God, from that common place. Um, he goes on and he says this to the Athenians. I have walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship and found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Then he says to them, that God whom you are unaware of, I will declare to you today. What Paul is doing is engaging in something that I like to call contextualization. He is making the gospel message specifically relevant to the Greeks. Here at High Point Church, contextualization is one of our uh, core values. Um, a simple definition, this is the definition I'll be using for the next 40 minutes or so as I try to help you contextualize in the places where you, where you work and live. The gospel has the greatest impact when it answers the questions people are asking and connects with the intellectual and emotional world that they live in. In other words, we have to make the gospel real for the people that we're trying to communicate to. This is what Paul does in Acts 17. We're going to see in Acts chapter 3, and I'll refer back to Acts chapter 2, that, that Paul formulates this gospel, the basic message of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, but specifically formulated for the Jewish mind and the Jewish audience. Okay, we're going to start in chapter 3. There's, this is a narrative, and it's a lot like chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. God is continuing to spread the gospel through his disciples. If you were here on Sunday, March 1st, where Vince preached, you remember he talked about the key to understanding verses 1 through 41 of chapter 2 was that the power of God. God was, was, was sending a display of his awesome power. And then he was using normal people like you and us who are in close proximity to the people that he wants to reach. Power, proximity. And then the third thing was that with a powerful proclamation, Right, where there would be an accusation, you are a sinner. And then there would be an invitation, repent and come to Jesus Christ. So we see both of those things happening in chapter two, all three of those dynamics, and also in chapter three. But what I wanna do differently today is I wanna focus on how God is making this really relevant for the Jewish audience. That's my focus. So I want to talk about power. First thing, God shows his love for the Israelites through a miraculous display, demonstration of his power. With, with power granted to Jesus, these two things. So as I, as I, as I preach this sermon, I want, to, I want you to understand, I'm going to focus on these two core messages. One, that our message must answer the questions people are asking. We'll focus on that. And two, our message must connect with both the hearts and the minds of the people we are seeking to reach. So as I go through power and proximity and proclamation, you're going to see these two points. All right. Bear with me. Here we go. Acts 3, 6, and 7. Power. 
Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by his right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. You see, what Peter is is doing here is the man has asked for money. He's laid before one of the gates upon the entrance to the temple, and, and he wants really to be helped in his current condition. He's lame. Acts 4 and around verse 22 tells us that this man is over 40 years old. He's been in this place, in this condition for an awful long time. And his friends come and place him there every week so that he can have something to eat. And so what God is doing is he wants to do something totally different than just helping him in his condition. He wants to transform his entire condition. He wants to not only save his soul, help him to know who God is and how salvation works, but he also wants to renew his body. And so what we we need to recognize about how God works is that what he does is he displays his power both here in chapter three, taking this man who had nothing and then instantly converting him to the point where he's walking and leaping and praising God instantaneously. And then if you consider that love, that display of love, and then go back to chapter two, uh, God's love works a little bit differently. There, he, he works in such a way that all the Israelites who are assembled there for the festival from many various nations, hear the wonderful works of Jesus in their own language. So let me reinterpret it to you. God loves, God loves, says this in chapter two. I want all of you Israelites to know the truth about Jesus Christ in your own language. God's love there. Chapter three, God's love says this. I want all you Israelites to know the power of Christ to renew and save both the body and the soul. That he doesn't just leave you in the condition that you're in, that he transforms your whole condition. Spiritually, physically, your whole life is changed when you come to Jesus Christ in faith. So so that's the first thing, that the power of God displays his love. Now let's look at proximity. Let's look at how Peter and John sought to connect with the hearts of the people. So we see God's work in love. Let's see what Peter and John do in love. Uh, In Acts 3.12 and 3.17, there's this phrase that they say a couple of times. They say, fellow Israelites. They are positioning themselves not as rabbis, not as prophets, not high, but right there with the people. It's as if he's saying to them, listen, brothers and sisters, fellow Israelites, I am one of you. There was a time when I denied Jesus, but I came to the saving knowledge that this man, Jesus, is indeed the Savior. Brothers and sisters, it's as if he's saying, I am a fellow Jew and came to the truth that Jesus is the Lord, and I want this same blessing for you. You see, when we are in close proximity to people and not communicating to them like we're know-it-alls that, have every, that know everything, but that we are in the same condition as human beings, we are in a great position to show them the love of God. Tom and Bonnie Lentz, uh, it was uh, 
um, Bloomington, Illinois, and they had recently come to Christ. Uh, they were celebrating the birth of their first child. And uh, it was Christmas season, they were excited about Jesus, and, uh, and Tom is an artist. So he painted a sign with the name of Jesus. And while everybody else in Bloomington on their neighborhood was celebrating Jesus in the conventional ways with, with trees and Christmas lights and all kinds of decorations, they're so excited about Jesus, just knew, they're like, what if we just take this sign, put a light behind it and just put Jesus out there? Well, what if we did that? So that's what they did. They put it out there and the whole community saw it and they thought, you know, that they would just have this up during a normal time. Like in, in our house, we just took the Christmas tree up, didn't we, like two weeks ago. Three, but I know most of you, I know most of you aren't that negligent about your Christmas tree and lights. You might get it up by the middle of January or, or something, something like that. But in our case, it's stage of February. They thought that they were just gonna leave the lights up just for a little bit, but here's what happened. The poor, the homeless, the needy start coming to their door, do, 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 knocking on it, trying to, looking to find Jesus. And what they decided to do is if since God sent these people to them because they saw his name, they felt like they should preach the gospel to him. So they start preaching the gospel to him when they come in and they, they try to meet all the needs that they could. And this went on for some years to the point when they decided they, need to, they needed to establish a church. So for the last 15 years, these people, Tom and Bonnie Lentz, average residents of Bloomington, have led a church in downtown Bloomington called the Jesus House. They have partnered with churches in their area. On Sunday, they serve a meal, they, they have worship service just like any church, and they have regular uh, members just like any church. My wife and I have, have, have come and preached and sang there numerous times. It's been about five years since we've been there. but. Um, Man, they minister to these people. They enlist the churches in the neighborhood to bring a meal so that every Sunday they provide a meal for everyone who's, who's there and hurting. I can't tell you the numbers of people that have, have been baptized through this ministry. I can't tell you the, how powerful their ministry is out in the neighborhoods where there's gangs and drug infection. They go out there with their van and with their group of people and they worship and preach and people come to faith. All because starting with an initial display of God's love. We've, we've got to remember, as we seek to reach people with the gospel, that we've got to start with connecting with people's hearts. So we've talked about um, power. We've talked about proximity. The fact that you and I, living and working close to people, have to share this message of the gospel in love. And now uh, I want to talk about Proclamation. Proclamation. One of the things that we want to consider is that what happens when this power is displayed is the people are astonished. We see this both in chapter 2 when everybody starts speaking um, in all these different languages, the wonderful works of God. The, the question is, how does this happen? They start answering the question, well, maybe they're drunk. That's what they do in chapter 2. In chapter 3, the people say, how did this happen? They then look to see, they want to ascribe the power to both Peter and John. So here's the question that the people comes up in their minds. How did this happen? And let's look to see how Peter answers it. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. 
When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? See, he's in t- looking at their faces. The question is on their faces. Sometimes when we're witnessing to people, we can see the question on their faces. What is this about this Jesus? What is this about you? Right? Sometimes it's, it's interesting questions of intrigue. Sometimes there's questions of doubt. In either case, we've got to be discerning. We've got to let the Holy Spirit work through us to discern what are the questions that people, sometimes they'll ask us. Other times it'll just be things that they're thinking. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Peter answers, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, fellow Israelites, our fathers, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before the Pilate, before Pilate, though he had decided to let them go. So the miracle is this. The Jesus that you disowned, the one who walked among us and preached and healed and taught and loved, you put him to death, but God rose him from the dead, verse 14 and 15. But the one you put to death, God has risen from the grave. And here I am to testify to him to this day. And he's saying this as lovingly as he can, but he's saying it as clearly as he can. We did this, we disowned him, but God raised him from the dead. Amen? So this is the first answer of the first question. How did this this miracle happen? It's Jesus, he rose from the dead, I'm his witness, we and the other apostles, we've seen him over 40 days, and, and, and and now you're seeing this power given to this man. Now, what, now, I'm an Israelite first century Jew, and if I can buy into the fact that I did this, I disown Jesus, what is my logical next question? Man, what can I do? I mean, I'm in bad shape. I put the Messiah to death. What, is there any hope for me? And so Peter says, yes, there's some, there some good news for you. It might be difficult, But there is indeed some good news for you. Acts 3 and 19 says, repent and turn to God. He's saying to them, you've got to change your whole way of thinking about this Jesus. The one whom you disowned is the Lord. The one that you put to death is the one that you should love. You've got to change your way of thinking about this man. And you've got to turn to God. One of the best illustrations about turning to God comes from this man, Peter, who's given this sermon. On the night Jesus was betrayed, Peter told Jesus that I don't care what happens, I am not going to deny you. I don't care what happens, I don't care who else, if I have to die with you, I don't care if everybody else abandons you. I'm going to stick with you through this trial that you're going to endure. And Jesus says to him, this night before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. Sure enough, as Jesus is arrested by the leaders of the Hebrews and then sent over to Pontius Pilate to be crucified and and killed, Peter denies him three times. And the cock crows, he remembers what Jesus says and flees devastated. John chapter 21, after Jesus has risen from the dead, it says three days after he rose from the dead, there's a scene at the Sea of Galilee. 
uh, Peter says he's going to go fishing. Six of the apostles go with him. They go fishing one day. They fish all night. They catch nothing. In the morning, they see somebody on the shore, shouts out to them, hey, gentlemen, guys, throw your net on the right side of the boat. And they look at this guy and say, listen, we've been fi- I'm a professional fisherman. I've been doing this my whole life. Throwing the net on the right. Don't you think I know how to fish? He's like, all right, what, what do we got to lose? They don't recognize this Jesus. What do we got to lose? We'll throw the net on the other side. The, they, they catch immediately 150 plus fish, so much so that their net is straining, right? And then John turns to him and says, it is the Lord. And Peter looks and he recognizes Jesus. And he jumps in the water and swims to shore. They're about 100 feet from shore, 100 yards from shore. And then the rest of them get in their boat and come. They get to the shore. Jesus prepares breakfast. After breakfast, he says this to Peter. He said, Peter, do you love me more than these? Most of the commentators and me too believe that he's referring to the fish. Do you, do you love me more than your fishing business? Is this all? You're going back into fishing, Peter? You're going back to your old profession? That's a question I, I sometimes need to ask myself. Are you going, Lloyd, are you going back? Are you going back to where it was? Or are you going to follow me? Are you going back, Peter? He says to him, Jesus says, I love you. No, Lord, I do love you. And then he says it to him again. Jesus, he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, I love you. And he says it the third time. The third time, I think, because Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus, he says, Peter, do you love me? He says to him, Jesus, you know everything. You know I love you. So then he says to him, feed my lambs. Take my gospel message to the Jewish people. Take it to the ends of the world. Feed the souls. You remember, Peter, when I called you, I said to you that I'm going to take you from being a fisherman to be a fisher of men. Get back on your job. Follow me. Become a fisher of men. Get back into the ministry. And then he says, he says, so he says, love me. Then he says, obey me. Go and preach. And then he says something really tough. He says this. He says, when you were young, you dressed yourself and you went wherever you wanted. But when you are old, someone's going to dress you. You're going to stretch your hands out. And the the text tells us that this was to indicate to Peter in the manner that he was to die. Church tradition says that Peter died by crucifixion. So he told him, you need to love me, which means you need to obey and follow me, which means in your specific case that you're going to die by persecution. Turn to God. Oftentimes, in our desire to win people who are skeptical, who are doubting, who don't know Jesus, we will dummy down the gospel message. And we'll tell them, you know, you just accept Jesus. And you won't say what, what Pastor Nick preached about two weeks ago about the persecution that's sure to come, right? But what we need to recognize is that there are tremendous blessings, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Peter talks about in this, this in his sermon, as well as difficult times that come from serve, serving Jesus. We need to really love him. We need to really buy that he's the Savior. We really need to buy that as we live in him, that it is the most blessed life, that he will provide for our needs, just as he says, that he will strengthen us to minister in every context, just as the word says. 
that, that we need to believe that living for Jesus is the most wonderful thing in the world and that it, its blessings far surpass the difficulties and trials that come from the opposition. We need to model that. We need to teach it honestly to people that that is true. Because that's what the Bible has always taught. Moses, in this particular situation, has given the people of Israel the word of God, all of the laws. He has told them about the tremendous blessings that will come from obeying God, how he'll be with them and he'll bless their womb, he'll bless their fields. And he also tells them the curses. He says, if you turn your back on me, I'm gonna cast you out. You'll have a remnant, but you're gonna suffer in a foreign land with the idols that you, that you sought after. He gives him the blessings and the curses. And then he sums it up with this. He says, this day, as he prepares to turn the mantle of leadership over to Joshua, he says this, this day I call heaven and earth as a witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, that you may listen to his voice, obey him, that you may hold fast to him, that is, that you're gonna to go to distance. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, to repent and to turn to God is not only a message that Peter preached, it's a message that Peter lived. It's not only a message that we just came up with out of the uh, out of the dust of the air in the New Testament, it's a message of following God that we've had throughout the st whole story of redemption. Now, I'm an Israelite. Uh, I see this power, you know, you answered the question for me, how did this come about? I recognize that I, by my own sin, put the Savior to death. And you answered the question, what can I do about it? And then I, I, have, I recognize, you see, I'm a, I'm a Hebrew, and I've been taught the scriptures by my spiritual leaders, by the priests, by the Levites, by the Sanhedrin. I've been taught these things. Um, I don't know what it's really like to live like a Christian. I don't, I don't really have a context for that. I know how to do, to live as a Hebrew. I, I know how to live under the law. How do I live outside of the law? Okay? What can I expect from God moving forward? And this is what, this is the question that Peter answers now. Acts 3, 19 through 21. Repent then and return to God, we talked about. Three things, so that your sins may be wiped out. This in itself is a tremendous miracle. The fact that I once was complicit in putting the Savior to death and all by just accepting, all by the grace of Jesus Christ, all by his finished work, I am completely forgiven. The first thing is your sins will be wiped out. The second is that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Times of refreshing may come for the Lord. What is he talking about? In Acts 2 and 38, when Peter preached in a, in a similar fashion, 
Here's what he said. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in my mind, this times of refreshing is connected with this gift of the Holy Spirit. What do I want to say? So much could be said about the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit of Christ indwells us. It allows us to understand the Word of God in a fresh way. You ever had a semester where you had all A's in school? Or, okay, how about this? A's and B's, all right? I never had all A's in a semester either. Uh, my first semester at the University of Illinois, I had all A's and B's. I thought I was the greatest guy in the world until the second semester came. That's a different story for a different sermon. But th th when you're doing well, there's a time of refreshment that comes in. There's a joy that comes into your life. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and when you begin to understand the Word of God, there's a refreshment of your soul. It's real. When you begin to obey the Word of God, and you begin to see God acting in people's lives, when you, when you, receive, when you begin to see yourself mature in Christ Jesus, there's a refreshment of your soul. Right now, I happen to be in one of these periods where God, he's really doing some work in my life. I got to just be honest. I see God working with me to minister to, to folks who have lost their dearest loved ones. I see in me attributes that I just haven't seen, a patience, an endurance, a sensitivity to deal with people that are going through the most difficult times of their life. I see the men who I'm mentoring. There's two men in particular. I see God using um, the, the words that I'm giving them, which are his words. I see their light bulbs coming on in their lives. I see them actually using the words. I see their situations improving. I see things happening through my obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. In a, in, a, in a way more, coming more rapidly than normal. I recognize that this is really God's work. Because what does is, what is Jesus says? He says that when we receive the word of God, that there's a fruitfulness that should come from that. Through our obedience, there's a fruitfulness that comes. This fruitfulness is part of the refreshment that is the heritage of every Christian that God works through people like us, humble people from our own backgrounds and stations of life, so that there is a refreshment that comes from knowing Jesus, a joy, Jesus said, that can't be taken away from us. Thirdly, he says, that you, he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus, Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. So your sins will be forgiven. You will have the Holy Spirit and he will bring joy to you as you serve him. And then your future is secured. There is a hope, an eternal hope that comes to you when Jesus returns. The Apostle Paul picked up on this theme. Oh, bear with me. Why does this happen to me? Okay. Yes, here's what I want to do. The Apostle Paul picks up on this. This theme, Jesus' return. 
page 1800 in your Bible. Second Thessalonians. Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica and he is, they're struggling, they're being persecuted and they wonder when Jesus is going to return. Paul writes to them this about Jesus' return. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance in faith in all persecutions and trials in which you are enduring. All this is the evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those, relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Jesus is not going to sneak back into our lives. There'll be a trumpet sound, there'll be noises of angels, there'll be fire in heaven. He's not gonna sneak back in. He's gonna come back in, and when he comes, he's doing two pieces of business. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 3.23, Peter says it a little differently. He says that God is going to receive the righteous and punish the wicked who don't, who don't uh, obey. Um, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. That's why we Christians do believe in a literal hell. That those who do not accept Christ, who have been offered his salvation and his life, that there is a literal hell, an eternal time of punishment, and a literal heaven, an eternal place of blessing. And shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. So what Peter is doing as he has talked about these three things, that your forgiveness is going to be extended to you, that times of refreshing, God is going to be with you. He's going to walk with you through the Christian life and you have eternal life ahead of you. Uh, he's answering those, those, those questions, that question, what's going to happen after I come to Jesus? Now there's one more question that a, a Jew would have. Okay, listen, I know that the Moses, the law of Moses is true. I know Moses is real. I know David is real. I know Isaiah is real. I know that the law is real. I know that the covenants were given to Israel. I got one more question for you. How does this all fulfill the law? So this is the most important question to a, to a, a first century Jew. And this all sounds good, but this could be a scam if you can't show me how coming to Jesus fulfills the scriptures, fulfills the law, I'm not in for this. And so that is the third thing that Peter takes on. He goes here. He says, listen, Moses, 
This is, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18, 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from his people. So he says, listen, that which Moses predicted right before he turned the mantle over to Joshua is this Jesus whom you put to death. That's his first argument. Here's the second argument. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these things. He's saying with Samuel, with David, who was given the prophecy of a son who would sit on his throne forever, confirmed in Isaiah, confirmed in Jeremiah, confirmed in Ezekiel, indeed confirmed throughout all the prophets, this Messiah who would come is this man Jesus. Second argument. Here's his third argument. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your, with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Genesis chapter 22 and chapter 26. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all the peoples on earth will be blessed. He's saying that this Jesus is the offspring of Abraham that would bring blessings to the whole world. He's the seed. He's the son. He's the offspring that would bless the whole world through faith in Jesus Christ. Every man, woman, and child across the whole globe could experience the blessedness of relationship with God. Those are his three arguments. He's saying Jesus fulfills the law. Um, so we've got to recognize that when it comes to contextualization, that we've got to answer the questions that are on people's minds. That's why I went through those four things. That was his theological reason. That was his argument. And the power and the proximity display God's love. Answer the arguments, reach the hearts and the minds of the people. Those are the things. Now I want to leave you with just two thoughts as I close up here this morning. How is it then that you and I can live this out? How do we live this out? I wanna leave you with two things that I suggest you focus on. The first is this, that you need to learn a great deal about the people that you are trying to reach. Uh, Stephen Covey in his uh, book, Seven High Habits of Highly Effective People put it this way. He said, seek first to understand and then to be understood. If I'm trying to reach college students in Madison, I got a lot of homework to do. Now I do have one son at home and from that experience, I know that the way uh, 18 to 20 somethings think now is a lot different than the way 18 to 20 somethings thought when I was that age. I've got to do some questions and I've got to approach them not like I'm a know-it-all. I've got to talk to them about what, you know, what are you listening? What are your, your challenges? What do you think about the gospel? What are your biggest objections to, to the gospel, right? I've got to ask some questions. I've got to do some learning so that when I begin to share Christ, I can speak their language. I'm saying all of us have to do this kind of work. There's some learning that we need to do about the people in our workplace. There's some learning we need to do about the people in our community 
We got to understand how they think about the world so that we can help tailor the gospel to their particular needs. This guy, Paul Hoskins, Paul is now the professor at Southwest uh, Seminary in, in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, how I got to know Paul was he was an intern at my church in Waukegan, Illinois. He, uh, we hired a lot of interns from TEDS, just like High Point d did. And this guy, in my mind, was probably the best intern. Uh, Paul is a professor in New Testament um, uh, at Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary. He ministers in a local church where he is a practitioner of uh, multi-ethnic ministry and racial reconciliation. Paul was serving at my, my church, predominantly an African-American church, and when he was working on his PhD for five years at TEDS, um, he was teaching undergraduate students theology. And uh, because he's always had a passion, he's from Louisiana, he's from a small town in Louisiana, right? He's always had a passion for multi-ethnic ministry, so he paid attention to the few African-American students that were in his class. Uh, there were a couple, three. And uh, he got to know them, you know, what their names were, where they went to high school, where they went to church. As he began to teach them, he began to see that they were falling behind academically. They weren't writing as well. Um, they weren't performing that as well. And he got to puzzling. He, he questioned, he got to thinking about it. And he asked them, you know, where'd you guys go to school? And quietly he went behind the scenes and he went out and looked at the state's data. And he looked at things like how much per student the kids at these schools, where these African-American students were going to, how much was being spent there compared to the students in Deerfield and the students where most of the student body was coming from for TEDS. And he saw a dramatic difference you know, what was, the, what was the, the average income like in those communities those kids were coming? <laughs> Not good, under the poverty level. And in the course of preaching this sermon on the Gospel of John, he burst into tears. Here's what he said, something like this. He said, these kids are struggling and they're doing the best they can, but they're just not prepared to do this. I gotta do something. He said, they're here, they're on the campus, I'm gonna do something about it. So he started doing extra tutoring. He started taking them to lunch. He started advocating for them with other professors. He did all that he could to try to help these students that were behind to get up to speed, to succeed in, in that environment. Pastor Hoskins, Dr. Hoskins, we have many interns over the eight years that I served at this church in Waukegan. By far, he was the most beloved intern. Outstanding teacher, outstanding teacher, especially in the, in the Gospel of John. But what made the difference for, with Paul was that he learned about the people that he was trying to serve, especially at TED's, and extended himself in love to meet the needs of those people. I got one more example I want to share with you. I think that when we reach out in love, Two things are important. We gotta engage with them. We gotta empathize with the people that we're trying to reach. I think Paul is a great example of that. And then we gotta do something. We gotta step out in action. Pastor Wilfredo De Jesus, uh, pastors in the Humboldt Park community of Chicago, 
He took over for his father-in-law pastoring in the year 2000. The church had 150 members. Now it has 17,000 members. It's the largest church in the Assemblies of God denomination. I ran into him or heard about his ministry because I've never met him at the Willow Creek Association Leadership Forum that they did this past uh, October. Deborah and I had an opportunity to go to see them at Heartland Community Church in Sun Prairie. And he gave, he gave a dynamic presentation and he told this story that I'm going to tell you. Um, the Chicago Police Force had arrested 600 prostitutes in Chicago. And they were, they, they were at their wits end. They didn't know what to do. They went to Pastor DeJesus because he has a reputation for inner city ministries and drug ministries and all kinds of things. He's a dynamic guy. They had, he has a reputation to help. So he said to him, hey, how can you help? And he was like, <laughs> I can pray. So that's what he did. He went to pray. And in his prayer time, he felt like God told him to go buy a farm. So he went back to his congregation in the inner city of Chicago. And he told these people, we got to buy a farm. You know, can you imagine this? Now, I don't know if you guys, you guys are not from Chicago. There ain't no farms, but you got to go about an hour and a half to get to some farms, all right? So they laugh at him. They laugh at him, but they say, okay, pastor, you know, you got a lot of credibility. We know you're a man of God. We'll pray along with you. After eight months, one of the members comes to him and says, pastor, I've got this 15-acre farm. And uh, my uncle is selling this farm, and uh, it costs 160000 If you can raise 160, you can have the farm. So they go to the whole congregation. They got a large church. Uh, they pray. They raise the money. They buy the farm. Uh, Ten years later, 240 prostitutes have visited this farm. They call it the, the, uh, I got the Dream Center. They call it the Dream Center. Um, they go there for six months. They have health care, they have counseling, they try to provide them with everything they need, they teach them the gospel, they help them to understand the Bible, and the, the testimony is that there are numbers of these ladies now are at his church in Chicago, others of these ladies have confessed Christ and have given their life to Jesus. Just a wonderful story, but the story gets even better. Every Friday at this church, in Chicago. Women go out to where the prostitutes are seeking customers, as it were. And they give them a rose and a card. They say to these ladies, God thinks of you like this rose, beautiful, precious in his sight. This is, this is how we see you, and this is how God. If you ever need some help, if you ever want to try to get out of this, here's a card. Call us at the church. And so those 200 plus ladies that have come have been ladies that received those roses and made those calls. And they, they come down with their van, they swoop them up, and they take them three hours out of Chicago to the Dream Center to give them opportunity to get to know Jesus and to be rebuilt. Talk about gospel contextualization to the group that you're trying to reach. So I just want to leave you with two things as, you, as we go. Remember that the gospel message must answer the questions that are on people's minds. And remember that as we reach out to people with the gospel, we've got to reach their hearts as well as their minds. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, your word is so dynamic and so powerful
that it has the power to reach every man in every language, in every situation that we can find ourselves in. There's nowhere that we can go outside of the realm of your power, of your grace and love. And we just love that about you. Our prayer this morning is that you will help us to be more sensitive to understanding the people that we seek to minister and able then to translate your love, your grace, your repentance and faith to all kinds of people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.